0: Scripture lesson four this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Listen now for God's word to you. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and to not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, we conclude our Gospel According to Broadway series this morning with a more recent cultural phenomenon, the musical Hamilton. Uh, it's not just a great name for a dog, everybody. Um <laughs> For those of you who don't know, my dog's name is Hamilton, and seemingly whenever someone finds that out, they ask me, well, did you name him after the musical? Well, let me just settle that once and for all, yes. Yes, we did. Uh, we, we bought our dog around the time the musical Hamilton came out, well, around the time it exploded on the scene, uh, but I'll admit that I was not always sold on the idea of the musical Hamilton. A musical about one of the founding fathers and the first secretary or treasury, secretary of the treasury How interesting could that be? How exciting could that be? Uh, But as it turns out, it actually is rather exciting. It's a rather interesting musical. Uh, And so because of that deal I made with Heather when we moved to New Jersey that she could go to Broadway as much as she wanted to because we were moving halfway across the country, uh, we bought our tickets to Hamilton. But it was so popular at that time that we had to buy our tickets 10 months in advance. Um, and because of that, we just missed the original cast by like a week or two. Um, it was still an amazing experience. I'm not trying to brag too much, uh, but that was, I think, one of the coolest things we did while living in on the East Coast was getting to see Hamilton uh, on Broadway. But in that 10-month span between when we bought our tickets and when we actually got to go, we listened to the soundtrack to that musical all the time, and that's thanks to my wife. She was insistent that we listened to it all the time, especially when we were in the car. We'd put the the two disc track into the into the cd player in the car. We still have one of those in that car we used to have, right? You remember those, the cd changers, five disc changers, it was all the rage with technology all those years ago. Um, and we listened to Hamilton on repeat over and over again. Have you heard this song? She'd ask you. How about this one? And the more I listened to it, the more I got swept up in Hamilton mania. And if you haven't seen it yet, it is available on Disney Plus with the original cast if that's your chosen way and for some people, the, the, the way the songs are put together may be difficult to hear and understand, so you can put the subtitles on uh, for that. I know Donna would have appreciated that, right? Uh, let's put the subtitles on, or you can go, I think it's still playing down in Detroit, you can see it if you want to do that live, um, but it really is a great musical. Um, it took the creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda, seven years to write the musical, um, and he first came up with the idea as he was on vacation with his then-girlfriend and now-wife, uh, he was simply looking for a a large book to read on vacation, something to keep his attention. And so he found Ron Trinot's biography of Alexander Hamilton that clocks in around 800 pages, or just over 800 pages. So if last week's novel Les Miserables, which turned into a musical, intimidates you a little too much because it's 1,500 pages, you could choose something half that length and read all about the founding father, Alexander Hamilton, at uh, 800 pages. Um, so he, as he's reading the story of Alexander Hamilton, he's really drawn to this story, this character who rises out of obscurity, uh, this character who kind of has this quintessential immigrant story. It, uh, Manuel, Lin-Manuel Rando said that he has a, a steeper hill to climb than the other founding fathers. Uh, but he also said that, that reading his bi- biography reminded him a lot of the life stories of rappers and hip-hop artists, Uh, which is why that style of music is found throughout the musical, rap and hip-hop. The musical is also known for having a cast that's almost all either black or Latino, and this was intentional. This is a way of communicating that America's story is a story that belongs to everybody, not to just one group of people. But as I've listened to the soundtrack numerous times, as I've seen the musical on Broadway, one of the things that really draws me in about Alexander Hamilton is he is this person, this character, who lives his life with a sense of urgency, a sense of persistence. That we are introduced to Hamilton in the musical with that opening line, my name is Alexander Hamilton, and there's a million things I haven't done. Just you wait. This is really how Hamilton lives his life, with this sense of urgency, this sense that he has a million things to do. No matter how much he accomplishes, there's always this sense that he wants to do More, He has this great sense of urgency about him, that his life begins in the Caribbean. He's born in the Caribbean to a Scottish mother and to a a Scottish father, excuse me, who leaves him at a young age. Um, His mother was allegedly a prostitute, but there is good reason to suspect that that was not true. That might have just been something, somebody said to discredit Alexander Hamilton. Um, But he really lives a life in poverty. His mother dies, I think, when he's around the age of 12. Um, so he really struggles. So he, he begs, borrows, barters, and steals books to educate himself. And he is always writing, always trying to make a name for himself, always trying to, to get out of this situation that he finds himself in. And so when a hurricane comes and destroys the island where he's living, the, his writing is so compelling that the village takes up a collection to send him to the mainland, to send him to the colonial United States. And when he gets there, he goes to school. He goes to Princeton University. He uh, makes a name for himself later on during the American Revolution, serving as George Washington's aide de camp. Uh, after the Revolution ends, he practices law. And then, when George Washington is elected as the first president, he serves as the first. Uh, what do I, how am I hard time with this? Uh, first Secretary of the Treasury. Um, and it's there that he develops the form of government that we still know and have here today. that Alexander Hamilton and others really form the constitution that we still have around us uh, today. But that form of government is not initially popular, uh, especially among the southern states and particularly among wealthy land Virginians. So think of people like Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson is one of Alexander Hamilton's main rivals throughout his life. And when George Washington is elected as president, both of them are in his cabinet. Uh, Jefferson is the Secretary of State, Hamilton is the Secretary of the Treasury. And they have numerous debates. And the way these debates are depicted in the musical is as a rap battle Hamilton and Jefferson having these rap battles back and forth, sending diss tracks to each other. And personally, I think that's how all cabinet debates should be conducted from now on. Um, For every president, no matter which party, I think that would make cabinet discussions way more interesting. And so because he has this form of government he's come up with that is not initially popular, he picks up his pen again and he starts writing with this sense of urgency that him and, and John Jay and James Madison, they have the idea to write 25 essays. They're called the Federalist Papers. Think back to your high school social studies class, the Federalist Papers, to defend this new form of government. Well, what actually ends up happening is John Jay gets sick and writes only five of those essays. And uh, James Madison, he writes 29. Alexander Hamilton writes the other 51 essays in a span of just six months. All defending this new form of government. And as we know, this form of government ends up being the one that we still have. Hamilton writes with this sense of urgency. Uh, Aaron Burr, one of his other sort of rivals, kind of the antagonist throughout the musical, he, he says towards the end of, the, of Act 1, he says, Why do you write like you're running out of time? Why do you write like you need it to survive? This is what Hamilton does. He, he writes with this incredible sense of urgency, this persistence. He's sort of annoying and irritating about it. But he simply cannot let go of what he believes is Right? Hamilton lives with this sense of urgency because he knows that if he doesn't, then he's never going to make it out of the Caribbean, make it out of the poverty he lives in. He knows if he doesn't live with a sense of urgency, this new form of government he's come up with is not going to be defended. In fact, he's irritated with Aaron Burr throughout the musical because Aaron Burr is sort of willing to kind of just sit on the fence, to kind of keep things close to his chest. But Hamilton just lets it all out there, and he's boisterous and obnoxious about it, will not let it go. Urgency, persistence, these are the qualities that we see in this parable that Jesus tells this morning. We've come to know it as the parable of the persistent widow. Uh, It starts out, as one scholar says, as uh, as a response to prayer, turns into a story about justice, and then it becomes a question of what does faith look like. So it starts out as this conversation about prayer. We have this line inserted from the gospel writer, Luke, who says that Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray and to not lose heart. Prayer. We all pray. We all pray for various things. and We tend to think of prayer sort of as this asking God for something, that we have somebody that we love who's going through a hard time, so we pray for them. We, we found a job that we really, really want. It would meet all the criteria we would ever want in a job, and so we pray and ask God to give that job to us. We hear the, the sweet prayers of children at bedtime that warm our hearts. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with any of these kinds of prayers. I think God hears us whenever and for whatever we pray for. But the sort of prayer that Jesus is talking about in this parable is a very different sort of prayer. It's a sort of prayer that arises that emerges when the world doesn't look as you would imagine it to look. It's a sort of prayer that arises from the lips of those who are called the least of these, our sisters and brothers. It's a sort of, sort of prayer that, that emerges from in those moments when we really want the world to look differently. It's a prayer that emerges from uh, the psalmists throughout the book of the Psalms. It's, it's a prayer that emerges out in the fields of the Antebellum South that get turned into, into the spirituals this longing for the world to look different. It's a prayer that emerges in response to what Jesus has just said in the section before this, that he is going to be going away, but in that in-between time, between when he is here initially and when he will return, the world will go through distress and hardship and pain and injustice. And it creates this, this longing in the hearts of people, this longing for the kingdom of God, what Jesus called the kingdom of God, this realm of justice and equity and compassion and mercy to show up, this longing for it to hurry up and for it to get here. And so the question is, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do as we have, been, have received this vision of what Jesus called the kingdom of God and the world not looking as it should? What Jesus says to his disciples and to us is that we keep on praying and we hold on to hope. But prayer, of course, is not just us making a wish to God, a request to God, and then sitting back and waiting for God to magically put that into our laps. Who of us, when we pray for those that we love, would simply make that request to God and then do nothing else about it? No, we bring meals, we call, we check in, we visit with them, we we want that job, that there's that job that we really want? Who of us would simply ask God for it but not fill out the application, not prepare for the interview? No, we prepare. We send in the best cover letter we can imagine. And if we are praying for the kingdom of God, this realm of justice and love and mercy, which we do, by the way, every single week when we pray those words of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. If we're praying for the kingdom of God, then we get busy seeking to build the kingdom of God all around us. We get busy seeking justice and love and compassion and mercy. We get busy trying to make the world look as we wish and long and hope that it could. We get busy doing what the widow in this parable does. This widow who comes before a judge who has a, a grievance against her neighbor. She has a lawsuit ongoing, and we don't know what the lawsuit is about, but the sense we get from the parable is that she's in the right. And Jesus is such a masterful storyteller that we have these characters who act in ways that they would never act in the real world, these sort of parody characters of themselves. We have the unjust judge and the persistent widow. The unjust judge who Jesus describes as neither fearing God nor caring about anybody else. This judge who sits on the bench, who has no ethical framework to carry out his profession. This judge who, in my imagination, never wanted to go to law school in the first place. But his family is a family full of lawyers. His dad was a lawyer. His grandfather was a lawyer. As far back as he can look, in fact, it's a family of lawyers. He didn't want to go to law school, but his parents forced him to go to law school. And he hated every second of it. He practiced law. And then he got his appointment to the bench simply by nepotism because of who his dad was. And everybody in town hated this judge. Whenever they found out they had to go to court and they asked who the judge was and they heard his name, they're like, ugh, not that judge. And then there is the widow. And in a patriarchal society, you can imagine few people as vulnerable as this widow. A widow who has really no legal standing in that society. Her husband is gone. She seems to have no male people to advocate for her. She really has no recourse in front of her but of course this is one of jesus parables and this is no ordinary widow this is a fierce feisty persistent widow she keeps on filing her claim with the judge she files the claim whatever for whatever it's about the judge comes into his chambers he sees the claim denied the next day he comes back in again there's that claim sitting there on the desk and he's like i thought i take, took care of this already denied again Comes back in the third day and there's that claim sitting there again on the desk and he's starting to wonder maybe it's time for retirement. He's starting to lose his mind a little bit. Denied yet again. And again, it just keeps on coming. And so finally the the judge says, I better give this widow what she's asking for or she's going to continue to wear me out. Which is not exactly accurate. What it actually says in the Greek, I better give this widow what she wants or she's going to come and give me a black eye. Notice that this little widow, terrifying this judge, this judge in his flowing black robes and his prestigious law degree, terrified of this little old widow. But she gets her justice, not because the judge is won over to her side, not because he has better angels to appeal to, but simply because she is persistent, she is urgent, she keeps on coming back that justice will never arrive, justice will never happen, unless there is persistence, unless there is this sense of urgency. And what Jesus says at the end of the parable is, when the Son of Man comes back, which is just a title that he uses for himself, when the Son of Man comes back, will he find such faith, such faithfulness on earth? Will he find people like the widow, people living with this sense of urgency, this sense of persistence? Will he find people like Alexander Hamilton who are living their lives with a, with like they're running out of time? Will he find people who are advocating for the least of these, our sisters and brothers, like they're running out of time? Will he find people who live with what Martin Luther King Jr. called the fierce urgency of now? We find people uh, advocating for the least of these our sisters and brothers like they're running out of time. We well, find people working for justice and peace in the world like they're running out of time. And we have an opportunity to be those sorts of people this morning. Uh, today we're doing what's known as the offering of letters through an organization called Bread for the World. Uh, Bread for the World is a Christian advocacy group that's been around for, I think, over 50 years. And, and every year they come up with legislative asks to help um, work on systemic problems to poverty and to hunger. And this year, their request is for what's known as the Farm Bill. And the Farm Bill was supposed to be renewed yesterday, but because, of course, of all the government shutdown talks, everything is being pushed back until, I think their deadline is now at the end of December. Um, So the Farm Bill would help increase access to food for marginalized people, would help with sustainability. We have an opportunity to be the sort of people who are advocating for the least of these, our sisters and brothers, to be the widow of this parable, persistent, relentless, unrelenting in pursuit of what Jesus called the kingdom of God. That you've heard me say it all before, that it's not enough to simply go downstream and, and pull people out of the river again and again and again. This is Desmond Tutu quote. But at, at some point we have to go upriver and find out why people are falling in. To be the widow to be persistent, to be urgent. So downstairs, there's a table, there's there's writing materials, there's paper, there's envelopes, there's even stamps. And uh, if you'd like to do it online, I can help you do that as well. That's actually how I'm going to do it. Um, I'm a millennial. I don't write ever on paper. Um, But you have an opportunity to be the, 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 the widow of this parable, to be a response to that question Jesus asked. When the Son of Man returns in all of his glory, Will he find people who are living their lives with a sense of urgency as if they're running out of time? And when he returns, can he say about us that we are loving our neighbors as ourselves as if we are running out of time? We are advocating for the least of these, our sisters and brothers, as if we are running out of time. We are seeking peace and justice in the world as if we are running out of time. Thanks be to God. Amen.